good morning. Um, just a reminder uh, here at River and Way, when we do our scriptural reading, we have a liturgical practice of um, when the scripture has been read. Um, in this case, Rebecca is going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And in response, the congregation will uh, repeat back, thanks be to God. And here's God's word. So we're reading from John um, chapter 17, 20 to 26. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the word may believe that, so that the wor world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them glory, the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory that you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, you are good, gracious, and kind to us. Your will be done in our lives as it is in heaven. We are sinners in need of your mercy, your grace. Help us not to embrace the world and all it, it offers, but rather help us seek you and your kingdom in a community of believers, which is your plan so that we may be like you in word and deed. We ask that you empower Brandon to clearly teach the truth of the scriptures and that your spirit would move among us, moving within us to receive your word in a way that changes us. We love you and desire to love as you love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 Thanks, Jim, Rebecca. You guys can have a seat. All right, good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Good? Good. Again, my name is Brandon, if we haven't, uh, if I haven't got to meet you yet today. Uh, I'm just excited to open up um, God's Word, especially this passage in John. This is um, one of my like favorite passages. Um, if you um, haven't been here the past two weeks, we have started a teaching series, a fall teaching, um, as we practice the way of Jesus together in Bakersfield. Um, like probably like a, like a few times a year as we discern, like we're gonna be practicing something together. Um, last year we talked about the practice of Sabbath keeping and how that forms and how that shapes us as we um, come into rest um, with Christ, and we actually practice that throughout the week. And the next um, two months, we are going to be um, talking about living in small, intentional gatherings of people. And there's a couple reasons we've decided to land here in this moment. Um, as Nick said a few weeks ago, this is um, who River and Way has always sought to be. 
Um, our vision from the very beginning is not about necessarily like a Sunday program, but about deep interconnection and com community, knowing one another well and deeply as we follow Christ together. And so just the two goals as we're gonna teach you this over the next two months is to catch vision for an interconnected community of disciples of Jesus doing life together and seeing that this community of Jesus followers is a means for transformation. Actually, the, the way we transform to become more like Christ, to be with him, to become like him, and to do the things that he does. And so we're doing a practice of community. In a lot of ways, this is a um, preparatory practice um, as we like reveal more and more over the next two months of what that looks like as we step into smaller communities. Um, last week, uh, Nick, or two weeks ago, Nick got to teach through like introducing of community being discipleship. This is the way we are formed. And also introducing us into like redefining what it means to be family in community. That when you become part of God's family through Jesus, we gain a heavenly father, but we also gain brothers and sisters. And it's brothers and sisters that we begin to see our lives transformed as we do that together in the new family of God. And that becomes the primary vehicle of discipleship as we looked at a few weeks ago after Songs and Stories before that. And for today, what we're gonna look at is we are gonna kinda take a macro step back. Instead of saying this is what community does, we're gonna kinda ask the question, why this way? Why is God's primary vehicle of life transformation done in the community of Jesus followers? Why has God set it up this way? And kind of the big premise is that we're gonna to see today that God is a divine community, is Trinity, and as a reflection of that, we reflect that in how we love and interact with one another. And we're gonna do that through John's uh, prayer that he gives in Jesus. Um, just but before, like to set this up, to give like a little metaphor for it. Um, there's a science experiment out there called a rubber hand illusion. Have you ever heard of this? Rubber hand illusion, some heads. What it is, and I'm gonna show you a picture and a little video of it, but researchers perform a trick on volunteers where they explore how the mind combines information from our senses that creates a feeling of body ownership. Under this illusion, you're gonna see a researcher places a fake rubber hand where there should be a real one on the person, and they hide your real hand to the side, and they cover it up with a sheet, and they touch your real hand and the fake hand that you're looking at, and eventually you start to believe that the fake hand that's right in front of you is your actual hand. Your mind makes that a reality, and it's this incredible thing that the brain does, but just, I found my favorite video of it on the internet. Are you okay watching it? All right, here is one minute long. Whoa, too loud. But the experiments that we're going to do today is I'm going to train your brain to believe that this hand, this arm, is your arm. You see we've got this divider here and the rulers. So we're going to train the sensation to feel the rulers touching your hands because it's not becoming one. Okay? Now again, I did not actually hurt you. 
I want to be a scientist, basically, is what that video <laughs> makes me want to be. Um, this is, it's this, this new reality that this person now accepts. And this morning, we're going to look at a prayer of Jesus that reveals his desire for community and the life of following Jesus, and it's based on what Jesus's community looks like. And in his prayer that we're going to look at, Jesus reveals a reality. He, he reveals a central reality that there exists an eternal divine community, a perfect love between Father and Son and Spirit, and that through His Spirit, we are together invited into that community. We are redeemed back into that reality of eternal love, union with God and union with other. And so metaphorically, we as humans often live in that sense that like the false hand is the reality, that like my individualism is the reality, that um, being disconnected from God and, and being disconnected from what God has done becomes a reality for most of us, or disconnected from reality becomes a, re a new reality. And what Jesus does in this prayer, I think for his disciples, is kind of go like, no, you guys, there's, this is reality. Like you're connected. There's connection here. Connected to God in union, connected to one another in a new family um, that Jesus creates. Would you pray with me? And we'll dive in. God, thank you for just your presence this morning, just the reminder for me to, to come and to abide in your presence. And so I pray just as we walk through scripture, as we walk through your word, um, Jesus, would you like give us, like, would we be able to hear clearly what your desire is? Would I be able to hear clearly what your, um, your heart is for us as brothers and sisters as we follow you together? Um, God, would you just use my words? Would you, um, through your Holy Spirit, would you just reveal what Scripture has for us this morning? Jesus, we love you and we worship you. We pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, go to John 17. It'll be up on the screen if you don't. But as you turn there, uh, just some context of what's happening. This is um, a very thick passage um, where John takes what's happening in the upper room the night before the betrayal, and he gives us five chapters of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, about teaching them about what, what true power looks like, teaching them what we read this morning to abide in him, to abide in his commands. And in this section, we have what's called the high priestly prayer and we actually get a glimpse of Jesus praying like Jesus we know would often retreat and he would pray to his father we hear some of that prayer in the garden of Gethsemane we also hear his prayer here this is how Jesus prayed and this is him praying for something specific and it's that that we're going to look at today so verse 20 if you have your Bibles it says this it'll be on the screens my prayer is not for them alone I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Jesus starts off saying, Father, I want to pray to you, but my prayer is not for them alone. I pray for those who will believe through their message. We are brought into this prayer conversation. The disciples are hearing him pray, and what I want us to notice first is this. Who is Jesus praying for? Who is he praying for? My prayer is not for them alone. That is towards his disciples who are in the room. Who he is praying for is us. This is Jesus in many ways, like praying for us in this room. Not just the apostles and the disciples who are in them, but Jesus says praying for those who will believe through the apostles' message. So if you are a follower of Jesus, believing in him, recipient of the good news, Jesus in this passage is, is praying for you today at River and Way 
in 2022, he includes us in this prayer to his father the night before his betrayal, his passion, his resurrection, ascension, he prays for us. In true prayers of petition, a person, like Jesus isn't praying half-heartedly here. Sometimes our, our prayers of petition are just like, God, I'd like, I'd like this, I'd like that. Or Father God, please bless this double-double animal style to the nourishment of my body. Um, it is not that type of like just, just prayer. This is, this is Jesus' passion, his high priestly prayer. If he can pray, he's praying one thing before the night he's betrayed, and this is what he prays. What does he ask for? What does he petition God for? Look at verse 21. Next verse, next slide. There we go. There it is. Verse 21, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Jesus has a specific thing he wants to pray for. What is it? He prays for oneness. He prays for unity. He prays for togetherness. And remember who's in the room at this time. This is a ragtag group of disciples. In a room listening to Jesus' prayer is Matthew, again, who's a colluding Roman government betrayer. He's a betrayer to his people, a tax collector. You have Simon, a violent revolutionary. You have James and John, who at one point petitioned Jesus privately to sit at his right and his left hand when he comes into his kingdom, and the other disciples are just ticked. Right, like you have, you, have, you have division, you have turmoil, you have political opposition in this little group. And they have no other reason to follow Jesus except for Jesus alone. And Jesus prays that, they, that people through them would be unified. Not just this group, but us as well. Jesus is praying for those who will believe in them. And he prays something specific. He prays that we... 2022 would be unified, that his church would be one as he and his father are one. Jesus clarifies that idea. He says it's going to look like something. I'll just highlight that. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Father, I pray that they're gonna be one. And what does that look like? What does oneness look like? He spells that out. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. This is not a get along and bear it type of unity that happens sometimes at family gatherings once a holiday. This is something different. This isn't just get along sometimes. This is a deeper type of unity, just as the Father and here one, and this is incredible. In the heart of Jesus is a desire. In the heart of Jesus in this prayer is a hope. In the heart of Jesus is a passion to see those who are redeemed and forgiven, those who come to faith in him, that they would experience what Jesus experiences with God the Father. Next verse. May they also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22. I'll throw that up there, Brett. Next slide, there it is. I have given, you had it up there, my friend, my bad. Verse 22, I have given them the glory you gave me. Let's read that again. May they also be in us that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me. And this is Jesus praying to the Father that they would be one. And we ask this, what is the glory that the Father gave Jesus? Jesus here says, God, you've given me glory. Father, you've given me glory and I've given it to them. He has given his disciples eternal life. In John 17, he describes it at the beginning of this passage. 
He describes what eternal life is. It's knowing the Father, knowing the true God, the living God, and this, Jesus, his Son, whom he has sent. And later, Jesus, the, the Holy Spirit will be poured out. And Jesus says, I give the glory that the Father has given me. Why has God given us this glory? Next verse, it says this. That they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. So they may be brought to complete unity. Jesus' prayer is that we are brought into complete unity just as it is with Jesus the Father. Jesus and the Father. The word complete here, and complete unity there, it has, its, it has its root in the telos, like the end, the aim, the goal. Jesus in his prayer is like summing up, this is the goal. The goal is that we become unified, that we step into that unity. The goal in Jesus' mind is that we would exchange the false rubber hand and come into the reality of what it, what it is like with Jesus and God the Father and the Spirit. This is an incredible moment that we get that Jesus is asking us for here. And as we lean into a practice of community as a church, the original idea of community, the name, means common unity. It is a picture of people together with a common purpose, common values, and living in unity around those values and those purposes. And in this prayer, Jesus is revealing what he wants his disciples' community to look like. And so as we prepare for this, as we practice community, we are in a very real sense, we are entering in a new reality. We are reflecting the divine community of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're actually reflecting something. Jesus has shown us something and we get to practice and we get to reflect that. But what we, need, we need to ask something first. What does, the, what does God and the Father and the Holy Spirit, sorry, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, what does that community look like? And how does it inform us? How does it inform how we practice that today? And so what I wanna talk about today, and I wanna like enter in with fear and trepidation, like, we're gonna talk a little bit about the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity very lightly, and I feel like we're gonna skim the surface of the ocean in a bit and just look at it because Jesus here invites us into, as we are going to be one, it needs to look like this. And the Christian church for the next couple hundred years start to work out this doctrine of the Trinity as Jesus has revealed it. That Jesus is God, the Father is God, and the Holy Spirit is as well. So bear with me in this and give me some grace, I might ask, as we dive into this incredible, um, the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity means that there is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Or stated differently, God is one in essence and three in persons. These definitions, they're, they're like, they're crucial church, tr truths that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're distinct persons, but each person's fully God, and there is only one God. God's idea of community, common unity, comes from the very nature of God himself, which is Trinity. Now, if you've grown up in the church for any amount of time, um, you've known about the Trinity, we've heard about the Trinity, we believe in the Trinity, but often our discussions and thoughts about the doctrine of the Trinity, they get kind of relegated to a high theological shelf. Like, we know about this, we believe this, but we often don't, like, pull it down off the shelf and actually have a, like, a conversation about it, right? 
probably because we like to talk about things and understand things that we can get our minds around and that we can actually make practical. And in its very nature of trying to understand God in that way, we like, it, it, gets, it gets too high. And so we want to leave it up on that high theological shelf. But the Trinity is something that we will never fully understand, but we can still know. Ronald Roheiser says this. Next slide, Brett. By definition, God is ineffable, meaning beyond imagination, beyond language. Even the best language and theology and church dogma can never be understood or captured adequately in a formula. Do you capture that? Like, we're talking about God here. And so to capture it fully, is, it's just, it's not gonna be possible. But we sure try though. If you grew up going to Sunday school at all, most likely you were given some kind of illustration to help you understand the nature of the Trinity. Does anybody like remember any of those illustrations that you had if you did grow up in the church? If not, good, you get to start with a clean slate. Um, maybe some of you guys got the egg analogy. Did anybody, I see some heads, you had the egg. Um, like the, the Trinity is like an egg. It's, there's three distinct parts, a yolk, a white, a shell, but it's one thing. Um, or maybe you had a shamrock leaf. I don't know if anybody had that. States of different water, like steam, ice. Um, what's the other one? Liquid, like water, okay. Um, <laughs> Uh, for me, and this is real, uh, my Sunday school teacher gave me the analogy of a three-headed giant, which is haunting, um, and that's so stuck with me to this day. Um, and these can feel somewhat bizarre, but at their heart, um, I think we can see what we're trying to do. We're trying to use metaphor and analogy to grab and to capture something that is true about God, but something that we, like, it's really hard to, to grasp at sometimes. It's our attempt to bring comprehension to something that is, can seem like a contradiction. How can one plus one plus one equal one, right? Which some beautiful mathematicians that are Christians always go, yeah, but we have to remember that one times one times one equals, equals one, which I like that one. How is it possible for God to be uniquely three persons but one Godhead as the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And this is where we have to be comfortable, as followers of Christ, we have to be comfortable with mystery. We are talking about when we try to explain God as Trinity, as Jesus is revealing him, is trying to name mystery. And for our analytical, Western, concrete minds, this can be really difficult to do. But I find personally a great relief in this, because it always positions me back to the point of like, Oh yeah, I'm not God. I'm not, I'm not God. As God reveals himself, there is more to learn. It positions me rightly in that. We are finite created beings talking about an infinite, uncreated creator God of all things. How do we put into limited words what he is like? John Wesley, this quote's up here, Brett, says this, bring me a worm that can comprehend a man and then I will show you a man that can comprehend the triune God. You get that? Like it's, it's like a worm trying to understand one of us and how we work. Or maybe a more contemporary phrase uh, from comedian Pete Holmes when he talks about humanity trying to comprehend the divine, he says, we are like dogs trying to understand the internet. Right? Like, I was like, that's like dogs trying to understand the internet. In a religious sense of the verb, the Greek word mystery means to close our eyes or our mouth. Mystery, it's like to close our eyes and our mouth. In the Christian context, we do not mean God is a mystery merely 
as it's like baffling or it's mysterious or it's unsolvable. But listen to this. Mystery is something that is revealed. And our understanding is revealed for our understanding, but which we never understand exhaustively. God has revealed the mystery. Jesus has revealed the mystery that God is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but we will never understand it exhaustively because we are stepping into the depths of God. We're stepping into the deepest parts of the ocean. Does that make sense at all? Like, we're trying, we're, we're trying to, Jesus is revealing something. We want to understand it, but we will never fully understand it. But we are invited to understand it more. Bishop Clissus Ware says this, next slide, Brett. It is not the task of Christianity to provide easy answers to every question, but to make us progressively aware of the mystery. God is not so much the object of our knowledge as the cause of our wonder. We are invited here with Jesus to wonder again to wonder about the love that has always existed and has been brought near to us in Christ, is here with us today through his spirit. God um, is a mystery, but by definition, he can be known. Let me finish this quote by Ronald Roheiser I showed you a second ago. Next slide. We read that top up top. God is by definition um, ineffable. Go down to the highlighted part. But God can be known, experienced, tasted, related to in love and friendship. What he means by this is though God is mystery, we cannot fully grasp. God can be known. We can know God. We can experience him. We can grow to know him more. To know the Trinity is to know God. The Trinity is a God we can know and forever grow to know better. The Trinity is a God we can know and forever grow to know better. What Jesus is praying here in John is that we would become one. His vision for community of his Jesus followers is to reflect his oneness with the Father and the Spirit. We are to experience that as well. And how we prefer one another over ourselves, we actually reflect the Trinity. And how we love one another, despite ourselves, we actually reflect, reflect the Trinity's love. And how we get along with one another, we actually reflect who God is. Who God is. This is the reality that Jesus desires for us. This is the reality that the Spirit is sanctifying us towards. And this is the reality that brings glory to the Father. This is like, this is our true arm. This is, this is our true arm. The problem is, if you're like me, you're like, wow, Jesus, your community looks amazing. The problem is that community is really difficult. The problem is that it doesn't look like that often, right? Being brothers and sisters in Christ is really hard sometimes, most times, not all the time. We will hurt each other. There will be hurt. There will be misunderstandings with one another. Sometimes we assume the worst in the other person. And friends that are followers, that followers of Jesus, we will annoy each other. There are some people in this room that don't like that other person in this room. And we both follow Jesus, filled with the Spirit. We will sin against one another, and we can often play into the, old, the familiar stories of Cain and Abel, of Jacob and Esau, of Joseph and his brothers. Does Jesus' prayer go unanswered? Here's, here's Jesus' prayer. Does it go unanswered? 
Why is it that we're not experiencing the oneness that like Christ prayed for? There's a strange story that happened in 2012. A lot of you might even remember seeing it. It's about this 1930s uh, fresco painting that needed to be restored in, the Catholic, in a Catholic church in Spain. Um, this painting was like really unremarkable, like just a painting on a wall. Nobody really knew about it. Nobody came and visited it. It was unremarkable. It's a depiction of Christ crowned with thorns. You wanna throw that up there, Brett? There it is. It's called Echo Homo, which means behold the man. Just imagine like you're walking to church, it's just on the side, you just pass right by it. And apparently the story, it's a true story, the priest saw it kind of just deteriorating and crumbling. It was like, ah, we need, to, we need to get this thing spruced up a little bit. It's 100 years old about. And so he hired an untrained artist named Cecilia Jimenez, who I think was part of their parish, to restore the painting that was flaking off. And so she worked on it. She took a vacation. Uh, she worked on it for a while. Then she took a vacation. And between that time that she worked on it and the, and the vacation, her rendition of this painting, her restoration of it, became a worldwide phenomenon. Do you want to see it? This is the restoration of the painting. Um, yep. According to the amateur artist Cecilia, she returned from that vacation, and when she returned, her restoration went viral, and it became the laughing stock of the world. Uh, she claims that it wasn't finished yet, which I'm like, come on, like, that's not getting any better, um, if I'm honest. Claims it wasn't finished, but people ended up, like, it became something you visited now, because they wanted to see this botched restoration peace. Uh, people, local people started saying uh, that it looks similar to a monkey. And so uh, the people started, no longer called it Eke Homo, behold the man, but and sometimes referred to as the loco, locals as Eke Mono. Mono means Spanish. So now it's behold the monkey is what um, they call this paintings. Um, go back to it one more time, Brett, just as we see it. Sometimes I hear Jesus' prayer in John 17 and it sounds amazing and beautiful. And it looks like just this beautiful painting that Jesus is setting up. Father, make them one as you and I are one and I am in you. But the rendition sometimes I see and experience looks like that. Like what I experience from community and I experience from church or in our history, sometimes it looks like that. And like I said before, has Jesus' prayer gone unanswered? Can Jesus' prayer go unanswered? Like, I, I want to submit to you that this, the restoration project of what Jesus inaugurated is something that we participate in today. We are, it's not finished yet, no. But we participate through, through the prayer of Jesus by the power of the Spirit to see like Jesus' prayer answered. Skip to the end um, as we go into our next section. John 17, verse 25. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them. Do you hear this? Jesus saying, I've made you known, Father. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Notice here what Jesus says he is wanting to make known to his disciples. God, I've done all this. I've shown them who you are. I revealed that to you. I've done that in order that what? In order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This is the same love that is 
always existed within the Trinity, the Father and love and the Spirit. And Jesus is saying, I want, I want that to be in them in order that the love you have for me may be in them. This is the project of God in the redeeming of the world since chapter three of the Bible, bringing us back into union with himself, back into union with himself, back into union towards each other and creation. And so how, ask this question, how does, Trinity, how does Trinity's community inform our practice? If it's supposed to look like that, it doesn't look like this, how is it supposed to? How is it that when we reflect on who God is, his very nature, how should that change how we interact with one another? Why is Jesus giving us this model in his prayer as he asks us to be one and he prays for us to be one? In your Bibles, turn to 1 John 4. 1 John 4. We're gonna sit on this section for a little bit and read the whole one. It's important to understand. This is a, one we know well. A passage we know well, but just in light of Jesus' prayer in John 20, I want us to read this again just with a different lens. It's important to understand that from the scriptures in this passage, there's this incredible proclamation that John gives us twice. They're like the theological um, peaks, two mountain peaks in this passage, where John just simply says, God is love. You've heard this before, we've said this before, we know this experience, God is love. What does that mean though? This brief, powerful statement before we listen to it, it's laden with implications for us. God is love. What that means is God cannot be love unless there is something for him to love. This is as we think about the truth, like God is love. But if that love wasn't a part of himself, if it was something separate, like in a sense, God did not create creation or humankind because God needed to love something. God was already love. If God created creation so that he could love something, love would not be in himself. He would be dependent on creation to be a God of love. God is love and love exists between a matrix of relationships. Love exists between persons. Love is relational energy. There may be relationship without love, but there will never be love without relationship. Meaning this, if God was singular, not three persons in one. If God was singular, he would have to create something else in order to engage in love. But because God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God is love. Love exists between them. St. Augustine reasoned it this way. The Father is the one who loves, the Son is the one who is loved, the beloved saw and revealed in the baptism of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is the love that flows between them and binds them together. This is something that like theologians and thinkers have been thinking about for a long time, and it shapes the way that we love. Um, a great book for this, uh, just that has impacted me, is Michael Reeves' Delighting in the Trinity. Um, if you want like a little 100-page read that's just fantastic. And he says this, it'll be up there on the, on the slide says this about the Trinity as we think about it. He says, Trinity is the cockpit of all Christian thinking. That is, if we think about anything, what does it mean for God to be holy? We think about what does it mean first for God to be three in one? What does holiness look like in that? When we think about what does it mean for God to be compassionate, we start thinking first through a Trinity lens. And so I know that's a lot, that's full, but I want you to read this passage with me in 1 John. And I'm gonna read it really slow, and I'm going to read it without any commentary. 
Um, just It'll be on the screens too if you don't have a Bible, but I just want you to soak in the connection of who God is in his being. He is love and how that should shape our response towards each other. 1 John 4, 7 through 21 says this. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit and we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love of God God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister who they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. So we reflect on the love of God God's love transforms us. As we begin to love each other the way that the Father has loved the Son, we begin to have the love of the Trinity, the Godhead in us. The way love exists between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the way they love the world is the way that we are invited to love the world as well. The way they love one another, we practice in loving one another. In a sense, this is now the definition of what it means for a community to love one another. What does love look like? In the project, in the restoration project, what does it, does it match this? Does it look like this? What does love look like? God, is, it looks like Jesus. God the Father sending Jesus. Whether we feel it or not, this love becomes our new reality, and that new reality begins to transform us. God's love transforms our loves and over time reorders our love. And his love for us is the love that we share with one another as we step into a practice of community. This is the work of love because it reflects the love that has always existed. And I know this can sound sometimes like almost mystical, like, but how does that happen? How? Sometimes we want easy three steps that we can scroll through on our Instagram feed I just go, oh, yeah, just do that, do that, and do that. And I honestly can't even explain to you fully how it happens. I know it happens through, like, our successes in life as we follow Jesus. It happens through our failures. As we do this together in community, it happens through sin 
and confession and repentance and forgiveness. It happens through experiencing the presence of God in the big things and also the day-to-day things. It happens around meals at tables as we trust, as we begin to trust one another long enough to show our wounds. And the people who follow Jesus and are full of the Spirit begin to speak like life back into us, pointing us to Jesus. As we believe, meaning obedient trust, that's what belief means. In Jesus, the Son of God, by his Spirit, he begins this process of transformation and that can't happen alone. It can't be done alone. It's done in a community of brothers and sisters that become the primary vehicle of transformation. And that love becomes evident. It is a fruit in our lives, evident in unity, evident in our love for one another. But here's the aim. The aim isn't that we necessarily focus on our unity and our love for one another in community. The aim is that we focus on God. When we focus on who God is and what his, like when we collectively abide in Jesus, the fruit of that is love for one another. The fruit of that connection is unity and care for one another in a community. And all we'll see, as the scriptures say here, we'll see this in a couple weeks, and know that the Father has sent Jesus by how we love one another. To end this way, there's a parable in Luke 15. It's the most famous one. It's called the parable of the lost sons or the prodigal son. And just as a way of reminder to think about this, what does this look like? How does God's love transform us? How does our love for one another reflect the divine community's love for one another, the Trinity's love? And in this parable, Jesus tells of a father who has an estate with two sons and the younger son wants his share in the dad's inheritance. And he says, I want it now. Essentially saying to the father, I want you dead, dad. I want you gone. I want my share of the inheritance now. And incredibly, the father gives it to him. He sells his property and the scriptures say he, he gives what belongs to his younger son to him and what belongs to the older son to him. He divides it between the two. And the younger son runs off to a faraway land and spends it all. He spends it on sex, experience, parties, and Jesus just simply says, wild living. He spends it all. And he ends up down and out, like working for somebody else, eating out of a pig trough, which for a good Jewish boy is just no bueno, right? He's not eating pigs, but he's, he's eating with the pigs. And for somehow, and we don't even know, but he just has a come to Jesus moment. Like he, he kind of wakes up, he comes to his senses, and he's like, what? My, my father's servants eat better than this. Like, I, I'm, I think I need to go back home. I know that I won't be able to be a son again. That, like, that ship has sailed. But maybe I can become a hired hand. Maybe I can become a servant. So he prepares his speech and he sets off for home. And Jesus' story, while that son is far, a far way off, still a long way off, the father sees him, meaning the father's looking for him. And while he's far off, the father, the father runs to him tackles him, kisses him, takes off his robe, puts it on his son, puts sandals on his feet, takes his ring off, puts it on his son. Like meaning like you're back, like you're, my, you're a son again. Before the, like, before the son can even get the full speech out, this is what the father does. The father lavishes on this reconciliation on his son and then he throws him a huge party. Jesus turns the parable's focus to the older brother who's been out in the field working and he hears a party going on and he kind of catches up on what's happening, that his brother's been back and his dad is just throwing a banger of a party for him. 
And the brother just gets angry, it says. He gets mad. He pulls his dad aside. Basically, his dad comes out. He basically says, Dad, like, what are you thinking? What's wrong with you? Don't you know what the son has done? The father simply says, your brother, we have to celebrate. Your brother is dead, is alive. He was lost. Now he's found. And then you get like the bitterness from the younger brother. Like you've never even thrown a party for me, dad. You get the true reflection of how he feels about the father in the story. And then the story just like ends. It's like period, the story's over. And you have two pictures of two sons and one who says, I want to get as far away as you can physically. The other is close to the father spatially, but like internally far off as well. Almost like a religious person who stays close to a Christian community but wants nothing to do with God. Both of these are far from the father's heart. Both of these are far from the house. The father comes to both of them. Both have lived in a distorted reality that their life is better apart from the father and apart from one another. And they are living in a reality like the video, like they're living in a fake hand reality. They're living in that. And the father welcomes the son back into the home and asks and calls the older son to come back in as well. And the story ends this way because we're supposed to choose what son we are. Like we're supposed to choose what son we are. But here's the thing, once you're brought back into the home, once you're brought back into the party, the implication is now that we become like the father. Does that make sense? We become like the father. Once you become part of the household, once you return home, the invitation is to become like that, to become like the father. Say yes to his love and then for that love to transform us. And the implication is that you begin to love, that we begin to love as the father has loved. We are transformed into that image. This home changes us. This home makes us new. This is the new reality for lost sons and daughters, that we become and we reflect what the father is like. And this is what Jesus' prayer is in John 20, that we would see what God is like like the parable, he's like that father. And then in turn, we begin to, to practice that with one another. We begin to take the painting and we begin to like participate with the spirit in restoring that. And so as we step into the practice of community, this morning we wanted to take just that macro view of why. And essentially what I just wanna argue with Jesus' like prayer here is the reason why we practice community in the way of, of this radical form of grace and love and how that's going to shape and form us. Why we do that is because that is what God is like. That's who God is. And so when we are out of sorts with that, or we find in my own life, when, when I don't want to be part of a community, when I don't want to love, when I don't want to forgive, it's in a sense like one of the sons going like, I don't want to, I want to come back out of the house. And Jesus invites us into that place. And so my prayer is for us this morning is would you enter into that reality? Would you begin to dream with God again about Jesus' prayer for what it looks like for community to follow after him and to practice the way of Jesus, not solo, not alone, but with others? Would you enter back into the party this morning? Enter back into home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just thinking of the story again that Jesus shared with, with the lost sons. They're just thankful 
for your grace and for your kindness and for your forgiveness and for your pursuing covenant love, for a love that doesn't give up, doesn't start short. God, you love the world in this way that you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins, to give us the life, give us his life, his resurrection life, that you filled us with the Spirit, so I'm overwhelmed by the grace of you. God, I pray that you would open up our hearts to know you more. God, I pray that we wouldn't shy away from the difficulties um, that, some, that, that sanctifying, like as you sanctify us, that that brings. And so God, in a way, it's like we welcome that. We welcome your work to form us to look more like you, Father. And we yield those parts of our lives that we want to hold that we want to hold back from you. I pray this morning that we would yield those to you. And so Jesus, as we take the bread and cup now, as we come um, to your table, Jesus, experiencing your presence, remembering your covenant with us, God, would you begin now to continue to transform us? Would you heal wounds where there are wounds? Like we prayed even today in our, in our would, would this become a community of safety for people to grow in you, Jesus? So Jesus, we love you, and we pray, amen. Um, we're gonna take communion, and so just as we transition to a time of worship, um, you were dismissed to grab the bread and the cup, um, either grape juice um, or wine, or you're choosing, and so you're dismissed to grab that, and you can come back to your um, chairs, and Nick will lead us in a time of communion um, as we respond.